0: What takes place on the cross that is the true measurement of God's love for us is what Jesus became on the cross. And on the cross, He became our sin. So now let's take a look at this love of Christ. You may be uh, rooted, being rooted and grounded in love. Verse 18, you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So there's this section right there where he, he gets very poetic, the length, the breadth, the height, the depth, and you may know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. There's a parallel here, here, a very beautiful parallel, of course, to Paul's letter to the Philippians. So here he prays that you may be strengthened in your inner man. And that strengthening, we said, comes oftentimes primarily through trials and difficulties. But the result of that is that you may know what surpasses knowledge. To the Philippians, he's going to say something very similar. He's going to say that you by fixating your thoughts upon the realities of God, that you may have the peace of God, which also passes understanding. So suffering in the context of Philippians brings about a peace that passes understanding. Suffering in the context of Ephesians brings about a comprehension of God's love for us that also passes understanding or passes knowledge. So this love that Christ has for us, he says that you would comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. So those four words there are just sort of a metaphoric, sort of a poetic way of describing the immensity, the massive uh, reality of Christ's love for his people. What, what What that basically means is he's probably just speaking with eloquent language here to try to describe a massive reality, an incredible reality that he's just really trying to place into words that we can grasp. So the height, the breadth, the width, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So this love of Christ for his people, let's think for just a minute about Christ's love for his people and how he shows his love for people. We live, as we all know, in a culture and in a world in which the idea of love is one that it takes no rocket scientist at all or no biblical scholar at all to know that the reality, the truth of love has been perverted in our culture today. But we probably don't realize just to what degree it has been perverted. So throughout the passage, the, the word that Paul uses for love is the word agape, which we know to have spiritual significance to it. But this love that Paul's speaking of, to compare it to our thoughts of love today, our society has ingrained into all of us to believe that love is an emotion. You would, I would suggest, you would have a hard time going tomorrow to whatever context that you spend your weekend at work or uh, school or wherever, whatever context it may be in, and and speaking to a a a co-worker or a fellow student or uh, someone throughout your your week and saying something like this to them, love is not an emotion. I think you'd have a pretty hard argument on your hands to convince someone that love is not an emotion because our society has taught us that love is an emotion. And if anything, it's an emotion that manifests itself sometimes in physical ways. But let's try, with the power of the Spirit this morning, let's try to evacuate our thinking from what our culture has taught us that love is, and let's attempt to think of the truth, the reality of love, biblically. How does the Bible understand love? Primarily, how does the Bible understand Christ's love for us? So if we think about love, and we take, think about it in, in two dimensions, maybe, maybe the emotional dimension and the non-emotional dimension. And we would ask ourselves, which of those two dimensions are presented to us in Scripture as the, the measurement, the definition of the love of God for his people? First, we'd ask ourselves, well, what about emotional love? Does Jesus show emotion, any emotion at all? And of course he does, right? Jesus is fully human. And he displays emotions. He displays frustration. He displays anger. He displays sadness. He displays joy. So does Jesus show a love for his people in the New Testament that is what we could could call an emotional kind of love? And quite frankly, I think he does, but it's pretty hard to find. There's a few examples. One of the examples I thought of was in Mark chapter 10. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? who would be a follower of Jesus, but he won't give up his love for riches. And so in the end, he doesn't follow Jesus. And In that passage, we're specifically told that Jesus, who is extending this invitation for this man to follow him, the invitation that he's rejecting, we're specifically told that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And that seems to me to be divorced from any sort of action of love. That that seems to be just an emotion that Jesus held for the man, that he loved him in his heart. Or I think of Jesus's words there when he says uh, of Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you like a chick gathers its hens. That seems to me to also speak of of an emotional affection that Jesus has for the ethnic people of Israel. Or... uh, Maybe perhaps another place we could possibly see this is the story of Lazarus. Remember Lazarus, who was Jesus's good friend and Jesus is away. And and then word comes that Lazarus is sick. And John there specifically tells us that Jesus loved Mary and Martha. So he, in this case, didn't do something. He stayed and didn't go. Now, that one's a little confusing because the reason he did stay was so that he could bring about the occasion for him to do something, which would be to raise Lazarus from from the grave. But possibly that too is speaking of, of an emotional bond. We think of how Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Certainly that was a display of great emotional affection. So I think if we look through the New Testament, we find that the New Testament is not devoid of speaking to us about an emotional type of of affection or love that God has for his people. So the love of God for his people is an emotional love. And because God is infinite in all of his ways, his emotional effect, affection, his emotional love for his people is likewise infinite. However, far and away, The most prevalent, the most common, the most overwhelmingly common way that the New Testament describes to us the love of God for His people is not with emotions, it's with action. The examples are so numerous as to, I didn't even, I just put sort of a sampling here in our notes, just some of the places that we see that when the New Testament wants to tell us that God loves his people or that Christ loves his people, it is virtually always done in the context of one thing, the cross. There are a, a couple of instances in the New Testament in which it speaks to us, the New Testament speaks to us of God's love for his people without having the context of the cross, but they are rare and kind of hard to trace down. By and large, overwhelmingly, when the New Testament speaks of God's love for His people, it does so in the context of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at a few examples Romans 5 and verse 8. But God shows His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know what could be plainer than the demonstration of God's love, as this is the demonstration. While you were in your sin, Christ died for you. A few chapters later, chapter eight, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, there's the cross, there's the sacrifice of Jesus. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from, there it is, the love of Christ. You see how the love of Christ is tightly knit within the context of the cross of Christ. Ephesians 2, verses four and five, we remember this one. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, there's the love of God for his people, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. How did he make us alive? Through the cross. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So God's love for the world was such that he gave his son. Galatians 2 and verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 John 4 and verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation there is just a fancy word for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Okay, so many other examples that we could see how the New Testament just has it's almost like it has a one track mind, love of God, cross of Christ, love of God, cross of Christ, love of God, cross of Christ in such a way that that we must conclude that that is how God wants us to think about his love for us. When God wants us to contemplate or back to the, the request here, when God wants us to In the power that he supplies coming down from above, the source down, coming down from above to reach out and grasp the love of God for his people, what God has in mind is a grasping of the love of God specifically in the cross of Christ. That is how God wants you to primarily think of his love for you. Now, how do we think about the love of God? We've all contemplated God's love for us. And I would suggest that living in the culture that we live in, in the society in which we live, and being trained from birth to think of love as, at the very least, primarily an emotion, I would say say our culture really thinks that love is only an emotion, but at least primarily an emotion. So having lived in this culture, And when we turn our thoughts to the love of God for His people, where do they go? They go to some nebulous, hard-to-define, hard-to-understand concept of this deep, bottomless pit of emotional affection on the part of the divine being for us. Now, it's true that God has profound, perfect, limitless emotional affection for his people. But it is not true that that's how God wants us to think of his love for us. Because, well, first of all, how do you? How do you contemplate that? How do, what sort of strength, Paul, would be needed for us to reach out and grasp that concept? I don't know how to put that into words. Do you know how to process that, process that in your mind? This, an emotional love on the part of a perfect divine being? Yes, we can understand some things about that, but I want to suggest to you and suggest strongly that God doesn't want us to think about His love for us in such undefined terms. He doesn't want us to think primarily of His love for us in some sort of emotional morass of of divine perfect affection. He wants us to think of His love for us specifically, defined, clear, understandable, seeable, perceivable, measurable. But we so often misunderstand understand this, don't we? Even John 3.16, the most well-known verse of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave. How do we understand that? That word, so. Don't we normally understand that, that, that what it's saying is that there is this huge amount of love? God so loved the world. That's not what that word means. That word means in this manner. God in this manner loved the world by giving his son. So even in that, we we can get all, I think, mixed up in this emotional idea and trying to get our minds around an emotion when God's plan for us is that we comprehend his love for us in much more specific ways in much more easily understandable ways and much more measurable ways. We measure the love of Christ for His people by the cross. We understand the love of Christ for His people because of the cross. Because the cross is the definitive yardstick for God's love for His people. The cross is the definitive explanation for God's love for His people. And the cross is the definition of God's love for His people. The cross is not the totality of God's love for His people, but it is the measurement that He seeks for us to understand His love by. So as we think about the cross and what the cross means, because the cross of Christ, because the the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is the measurement of God's love for us, What is the cross doing? What about the cross is Jesus's love for us? So as we contemplate the cross, we're contemplating the the love of Jesus for his people. What are we contemplating? I think it is helpful to think of the extreme suffering, the, the physical agony, the shame of being nailed to a piece of wood naked after being beaten to a pulp and just left there until you're dead, the extreme shame, the indescribable pain, all of that is a reality, but that's not the measurement of the cross. What takes place on the cross that is the true measurement of God's love for us is what Jesus became on the cross. And on the cross, he became our sin. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he who knew no sin became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. This this divine exchange takes place on the cross. Jesus on the cross becomes our sin so that he may be punished by God for our sin while we, by faith, are given his righteousness this exchange of His righteousness for our sin. So as we contemplate, this is Paul's request here, that you would have the strength to reach out and grasp the love of Christ for His people. What are we trying to reach out and grasp? We are trying to reach out and grasp the sin that Jesus became, aren't we? Isn't that what we're really trying to understand? If Jesus becoming our sin is the love of God for his people, then to comprehend that love, don't we really need to comprehend the sin that he became? On the cross, you see, Jesus Jesus didn't become sin in theory. Jesus didn't become the concept of sin. Jesus didn't become some philosophical definition of sin. On the cross, Jesus became your sin. If Jesus did not become your sin on the cross, then your sin has not been atoned for. In order for there to be salvation through the cross, in order for the cross to be the love of God for his people, he had to become not just sin in general. He had to become the sin of his people so that the sin of his people could be fully punished by God. And being fully punished by God, we then receive the forgiveness, the cleansing from that sin, but also the righteousness of the life that he lived in our place. So comprehending the love of God for his people is inseparable from comprehending the sin that Jesus became as this definitive measurement Of the love of God for his people, which is the other reason that Paul says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. You see, it requires every redeemed saint to comprehend the love of God for his people. The love of God for his people cannot be rightly comprehended by even one less redeemed saint. Than what God has redeemed. Because the love of God for his people is measured by the sin that he became. And so all of God's people are needed to comprehend the love of the cross in order for his love to be comprehended. You see, the love of Jesus is not just this great big massive pit of, of emotional favor. The love of Christ is your specific sin that He became on the cross for you. So imagine the sin of just one person, just one of God's saints. Imagine what a thing that was for Jesus to become even one person's sin. Now imagine the love of Christ with that taken away. Oh, what a thing to be taken away. If we were to say, let's comprehend the love of Christ for all of His saints, less one. Even one taken away takes away from the comprehension of the love of God an unspeakable amount of love. Therefore, Paul says, to comprehend the love of God for His people requires all of His people. Because you know what? I I have no comprehension for your sin. I know that Jesus paid for your sin, but I don't really understand that because I understand my sin. We all have a deep recognition and comprehension for our own sin. But Paul says, like like Paul says to the to uh, to Timothy in his second letter to Timothy, I'm, "I'm the worst sinner that I know because it's my sin that I comprehend." So I can't comprehend the love of God for his people by contemplating your sin. I comprehend the love of God's people by contemplating my sin. And therefore, all of God's people. This is what Paul's really... This this is his prayer. He prays, oh God, that all of your people, all of them, every one, would have the strength to comprehend your love for them so that your people... Comprehend the great, indescribable, unlimited, immeasurable, surpassing love of God for His people. You see what he's driving at? Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church we invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at facebook nc. Truth that transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.